Welcome to the PEBC Podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I am the host of our series on phenomenal teaching. This series is a collection of conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers whose work connects with the PEBC teaching framework. In each episode, we will explore how the strands of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment all cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding across the curriculum and grade levels. Thank you so much for listening in. Today, Scott Bain and I are going to be discussing the complexities of leadership during this very complex time. Scott is the principal of the Open School in Jefferson County, Colorado. The teachers and leaders of the Open School embrace the tenets of the PEBC teaching framework. We, as the PEBC, are very fortunate to be able to bring visitors to the Open School to observe instruction to learn more about planning, community, the workshop model, thinking strategies, discourse and assessment in action, side by side with practicing teachers. In addition, Scott actually hosts our PEBC Leadership Lab, which involves school leaders observing instruction and then debriefing both instruction and leadership. Scott, it's such a pleasure to see you today and welcome you to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah, I cannot wait for our conversation. Now, I know I've been to the open school many times and have worked side by side with your teachers and engaged in different study groups and brought visitors to observe some of your lab hosts, but I can never do it justice. So I'm wondering if you could start off today by telling us a little bit about you and the open school. Great. Thank you. Um, well, I, I have to, I'm a little bit Twitter-pated because I'm a fan of podcasts, and so to actually be the subject of one is really a, an exciting opportunity for me. So thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. Absolutely. Um, so a little bit about myself. I'm a native of Colorado, grew up in the area, um, and uh, I've been the principal at the Open School. This is my 11th year as principal, but I've been at the school for 20 years. So um I did teach a few years before coming to finding my way to the open school, but um, I've done the bulk of my career here, obviously, and made that transition that many people sort of discourage of becoming a leader within the school that you've taught in. And I've found quite the opposite, that it was nothing but beneficial because I understood the school from every particular angle and had relationships and had the trust to work with the staff. And um I love education. I'm a self-described education geek. I like reading educational nonfiction for entertainment and (laughs) things like that. Um, And I'm definitely passionate about progressive education. Um, My wife, Lisa, is also an administrator at a progressive expeditionary learning school. Um, I have two kids, one who's an alumni of the Open School and is currently at Colorado School of Mines. And then my youngest is a senior at the Open School this year as well, and also attending a few classes at Golden High School in in Golden. Um, And I am at the Open School because I I believe deeply in progressive education and what it does for students. Obviously, I wouldn't have had my own kids attend here if I didn't believe in what the school can do for for people. Um, So what that really sort of boils down to is this really strong sense of self. And it's a way of internalizing the values and the goals of the school in a way that help kids make this transition into Um, from adolescence to adulthood in a way that really is meaningful and authentic um, and really 
gives kids the skills necessary to go out into the world and, and create a better place. So that's, that's my, why I'm here. Um, so then a bit about the open school specifically, um, this is a unique year for us. It is the 50th anniversary of the open school. So the open school was started as a public school of choice, uh, in 1970. It was a group of parents who took this concept of a different kind of school to the school board and proposed that they be able to run this pilot program that was known as the open school. And luckily I've had the opportunity to meet a handful of the parents who were involved in the inception of the school when it started and listening to them and understanding their rationale behind the creation of the school was not so much that they were disgruntled with what was happening in other schools, but they just felt like they could get more out of their students' education. And by more was really a focus on attending to the whole child. And the language that we use here at the Open School is around the personal, social, and intellectual development of a person. Um, and just wanting it to be much more well-rounded of a type of education than in the 70s. That was a radical idea. Um, I would suggest it's still radical, but it's, it's much more common, thankfully, in, in education. So um, also the philosophy is really just fundamentally, you know, if you boil it down to its essence, it's based on that core belief that people, human beings, are inherently curious and they want to learn. And the more that you can get out of their way and let them take the lead, the better. And so while the school has evolved substantially in its 50 years existence, that's really kind of still central to everything we do of, of letting this student take ownership and have agency in, in their education, which makes us a good fit for working with PEBC. Um, <clears throat> the school is really kind of centered around five main goals. And those goals are students will be able to rediscover the joy of learning, seek meaning in life, adapt to the world as it is, prepare for the world as it might be, and most importantly, create the world that ought to be. Um, so we have a really robust advisory system. Um, it's a core principle that no student should be anonymous at the school. And so we refer to student uh, teachers as advisors. And the advisory system is, is a mechanism for ensuring that every student is known by at least one adult in the building um, and that parents have a contact person and somebody that is their go-to person. Um, it's really the pinnacle of the program is to create self-directed learners. Um, and students begin that process in preschool. And it's really a gradual release of responsibility that that's on a continuum or an arc of preschool through 12th grade. Um, so students begin, you know, the PEBC model and the workshop model does a beautiful job of helping teaching those skills of self-direction when kids are young and it's developmentally appropriate in that, in that format. And then as they get older, the level of independence continues to increase and the amount of sort of say that a student has in shaping their own education just becomes increasingly more the older they get in our program. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that actually looks like later on in the conversation. Um, we're also heavily invested in experiential learning. Um, we believe that the world is our classroom and that learning is happening all the time in all different kinds of places. And the more that we can help students recognize that, the better. Um, that is particularly manifest in our school through what we call passages or self-directed learning projects. They would be called capstones in today's vernacular. Um, but those are independent projects that students design and execute with the support of their advisor. 
Um, another aspect that is very experiential, experiential about our program is the educational travel program that we have. Um, currently on hiatus during the COVID era, but um, we on average do about 40 extended trips a year, um, leave the school and probably 300 or so day trips. Um, so we believe that getting out into the world and actually getting your hands dirty in the learning experience is vitally important. So that's my elevator speech version of what is the open school. <laughs> so. Thank you. Like I said, I would not have done it justice and I couldn't have, I could never have named all of the nuances, nor could I have conveyed the passion and that strong belief that you have in student agency and students being, you know, that self-direction the, and the, as learners, as well as for your teachers. And I know that the open school is a very complex system. You have a very, very strong philosophy, which and that everyone is committed to on a daily basis. And it's also PK through 12. And all of your students and teachers and staff are all within the same building. And so I'd love today to really talk about leadership. How do you lead such a complex system during an extraordinarily complex time? Yeah. What's, what's happening for you right now with COVID? I mean, you mentioned a couple of the things that have had to change, but like really for you as a leader, what, what are you grappling with and, and what's happening in your building? Yeah, so to, to frame the idea of the complexity just a little more clearly is that in describing the school and the philosophy of the school, that, that is, um, there are some truisms that hold um, across the pre-K through 12 continuum, and yet the way that that's manifest at each level is a little bit different, as would be developmentally appropriate. And so when you break it down on that level, even though we share a common philosophy, there's really three or four schools, depending on how you look at it. The preschool has its own sort of elements that need to be dealt with independently. The elementary, which is for us mostly K-5, but inclusive of a sixth grade program that's more transitionary um, out of elementary and into middle school. Then the middle school program, which we call Foundations at the Open School, and then our high school program, which is called Walkabout. And so each of those levels of the program have a, they're each their own unique staff and their, um, you know, set of accountability measures in Colorado, the um, Unified Improvement Plan or the UIP. There are separate versions of that for each level of the school. And so just in the managerial component of, of operating the open school, while we're viewed as one preschool through 12th grade school, you really are fundamentally dealing with the management and organization and execution of of three to four different schools, depending on how you look at that. So, um, so it's certainly a complex system. And then when you add in the overlay of all the impact of, of COVID and dealing with our response to that, it's certainly made for a really complex time and trying to, to tease out how to move forward in a way that's effective. So, um, so, so yeah. when we think about that, you know, that just take a pause for that complexity, really as the, the building principal, you really are managing three or four different school systems within a school underneath this umbrella. So when you think about yourself as a leader, what actions or steps are you taking to ensure that you can continue to to lead in that complex way, you know, that complex system, but also dealing with 
like you said, all of the things that COVID is bringing to all of our building administrators. So what, what are some of those exact steps that you're taking? Um, well, I mean, you could couch it underneath the term of delegation. Um, and I think it's actually something that I feel um, that I do well, <laughs> which is finding the people that can do the job and do it well and, and help support me if, I, if there's an area where I'm lacking. Um, so surrounding myself with a team that, that's effective at what they do. And, and I just can't say enough about my current administrative team. Um, over the years, I've had phenomenal instructional coaches. Um, and so it's really just surrounding yourself with people that you know can do the job and do it well. Um, one of my current APs has worked in the virtual school world. And so certainly her skill set in adapting to the COVID world has been, you know, invaluable and, and the role that she's played has been exceptional. Um, so that that's a key component of knowing where your strengths are and leaning into those and then knowing where places where you need to shore yourself up with some additional support and seeking out and finding the right people for the to do the job. Um, and so that I feel really good about. And then with that comes, you know, if, you, if you're doing that effectively, like that goes all the way, you know, from all levels of the organization. And so when you look at your teaching staff, um, you know, that idea of agency and the way that that plays out in a classroom, it works the same way with the adults in the building too, that, you know, if you really have a fundamental belief in turning over the ownership of learning to the student, then it just falls in line that you would turn over the, the ownership of of taking the lead in the teaching realm to the teachers, right? Trusting the teachers to do the job that they're paid to do, you know, and sometimes, you know, teachers get portrayed in the me in the media as, as not as competent as they really are. Um, Cause my experience is overwhelmingly such that these are wicked smart people who work extremely hard that are very dedicated to the success of their students. And given the trust and the autonomy to be creative, they, find solutions that I would have never thought of. Um, <clears throat> and so then when you bring a team like that together, who is trusted to do the work that I know that they can do, then they're able to push themselves into realms that, you know, I don't think they could if they were just being told what to do and when to do it and how to do it. And so oh. there's a lot of really leaning in on that trust of people to do what they're, you know, paid to do. So I'm inferring that those two actions are also really important core beliefs for you during non-COVID times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This, you know, leaning into the strengths of your team and really trusting your teachers. However, with that precedent being set in your building, you're able to leverage both of those even more at this time. Yeah, I think it's actually a thing that's that's, you know, short us up in a moment that is really difficult. You know, obviously this is challenging for everybody. Um, there's also one other element that I just feel like I would need to mention is just that that sense of community that's created in this school. Um, just like I mentioned the advisory system and the way that, you know, there's a core belief that no student could be anonymous, that there's also a deep sense of community. And so when teachers have this level of trust and they're encouraged to be creative and take risks, you know, they have opportunity to lean in on each other for that. And so there's this whole element of, you know, social, emotional a modeling of empathy and grace for people to take the risks that are really necessary to be um, <clears throat> innovative as educators and, and keep that edge alive. Um, this year, it's been really pretty 
I mean, people's emotions are right at the surface. Um, there have been a lot of stressors that we've all gone through in all aspects of our lives. And so, you know, people who are really, you know, solid educators and know their craft and are bringing all that to the table, you know, are, are it's emotionally challenging because it's, it's not what we have typically experienced as school, quote unquote. Um, and, you know, people are in a variety of different places. And so creating opportunity for people to feel connected um, and, you know, be part of this larger community that's grappling with some of the same issues together. And, you know, I, I, it's also a core belief of mine that, you know, people make, we make better decisions collectively than we would individually. And so creating opportunities for people to, to remain connected. And that's challenging at this time because, you know, as much as the technology has allowed for, you know, virtual conferencing type of meetings, it's just different, right? It's, we're used to sitting in circles with each other, you know, and being able to look across the circle, you know, at a person and read their body language and what have you. And so, you know, there are challenges to that, but I believe that the strength of the community that we have and the support that um, each other feels for one another and the trust in our abilities to do the work that needs to be done, um, it's it falls in line with, you know, the idea of Maslow's hierarchy that, you know, if we've created enough safety and we've created a sense of belonging, that those those component parts are absolutely essential <clears throat> to allow people to get to a place where they can, you know, move from being in crisis mode to, to moving into a more creative place. And, you know, while those things have been effective, I would still say that, you know, it's been challenging during this period of time for sure. So. Absolutely. So even, even a very special attention to just that idea of modeling empathy and grace and compassion for the adults, as well as the students in the building. Yeah, absolutely. So when you think about that idea of a really strong leadership team with some really powerful delegation, like you said, a wicked smart teaching staff that you have total trust in, they're creative, they're autonomous, looking out for those social and emotional needs. What else are you thinking about as a leader? Well, um, you know, if we've, if we've done our job in that area, then you would want to begin to, to push yourself into, you know, how do you get to a more creative place in this moment? Like, do we just have to be in the reaction mode? And um, over the, just doing reading over the summer, um, you know, there was a few books that I was into over the summer, um, some related to education and some not. Um, although somehow they all find their, the, their selves back to me viewing it through an education lens. I read um, The Rise of Wolf 8, which was about re wolf reintroduction in, in Yellowstone, and that had some phenomenal stories, totally unrelated to education. But of course, I found its way back to how I might apply that to what's going on at the open school. Um, <laughs> going back to your introduction as being a right. <laughs> education geek, you're sure. <laughs> reading as much as you can and then synthesizing. And, you know, as a thinking strategies person, I just like, oh, Scott synthesis. Yeah. <laughs> So what it's, were you it's reading probably well, why PEBC resonates with me so much. It's like, oh, yeah, I have schema for that. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Um, but then the, the other book I read was A Beautiful Constraint, which is by Adam Morgan and Mark 
Braden. Um, and that was a really interesting book because it, it's really targeted more towards business and business leaders, um, although it certainly has implications for any organization, particularly a learning organization. Um, you know, and, and listening to that over the summer and, and really delving into some of the ideas that they were talking about is that how do we move from this idea of reacting to our circumstances and move beyond that and push ourselves to to seize this moment that exists because the way that things have always been done can't be done anymore, right? Like the premise of the book is, you know, that the, you know, substantial moves forward in human history and our personal lives, you know, and as organizations is often a result of the imposition of a constraint. And this book was written pre-COVID. And so it's certainly, you know, the magnitude of the constraint is maybe <laughs> underestimated by the book, but maybe not. Um, but it's like, how do we take the lessons of this moment because it's forcing it outside of our usual patterns or our ruts as they might be and really forcing us to rethink about the way that we do things. And so it, it, it really prompts the question of what are the important philosophical conversations that need to be happening right now. And um, they describe these propelling questions of what's going to drive you forward in a time of constraint. Um, and so when I start to get out of the mode of like just the management of everything that has to be done to maintain safety and still provide um, a viable educational experience for kids and move to the place of like, no, how do we actually like take the lessons of this and what do we really value about what's happening right now that's going to influence education moving forward. Um, and for that, I mean, the, the obviously the interface with technology is is a huge component, but then how do we how do we adapt to the technology in a way that ensures that that deep sense of belonging and connection to people um, is maintained and that there are deeply authentic and meaningful and engaging learning experiences that students are still having as we adapt to the new environment. Um, so, and I, I do think there's some real opportunity to think about, there's gonna be some profound shifts in public education moving forward. And many of those are very exciting um, and create new opportunities that didn't exist be prior to these constraints you know, being imposed. Well, it's so interesting just to think about the way you just framed some of the, you know, the tenets of that of that book. And now I have to, of course, get my hands on it and start diving into this idea of beautiful constraints, because that seems like, you know, such a kind of crashing juxtaposition that how can a constraint, something that's going to hold you back, also be beautiful at the same time? So when I'm thinking about your leadership style and your leadership beliefs with, you know, delegation, teacher autonomy caring for individuals as humans. I feel like that at the open school, you and the staff have really like in a way like tilled some really fertile fo like soil so that you can take on some of these constraints in a beautiful way. Yeah. So I'm wondering if we can think a little bit about like the short term, like, so how have you adapted at the open school to some of the constraints that are, part of our everyday school lives. And then I'd love to dive into what you just touched on, like things might never be the same. Right. And so how can we learn, what can we learn from this opportunity if we view it that way that will impact students moving forward? But let's start short term. 
how right. did how did you all adjust? Right. There's the, there is the initial just reacting to um, that is necessary, right? Like that even within a beautiful constraints within the book, he talks about, you know, there's a moment of feeling like a victim of the circumstances, so to speak, you know, and that's just a practical reality in a stage, you know, similar to the stages of grief that you would almost have to go through. Um, you know, in my, in my first couple of years as principal, we dealt with being a turnaround school under the accountability system. And, and I see a lot of parallels you know, it's not quite the same thing, but there are a lot of parallels between sort of our response at that time um, and sort of moving through that and turning the school around um, to to um, a performance ranking within the state system um, and what we're dealing with right now. And so in the immediacy is like, you know, working with families, working with staff, trying to figure out how many kids are actually going to be in person, how many people are going to be accessing their education remotely, how do we shuffle staff around to accommodate for that. And this is one of those places where the complexity of the three to four different schools really came into play in a way that is really challenging. And therefore, you know, it's almost like out of necessity grows this idea that you have to allow the autonomy for people to make these decisions, you know, and honestly, the teachers are the closest to, I mean, we're all here for students. That's the whole function of why we're here. And they're the closest to the kids. And so their input and their decision-making in that process is absolutely paramount. Um, So working with the elementary staff to really come up with both uh, in-person and a remote setting um, for kids. So now you've added effectively two different schools within just the elementary school because you have the remote staff and you have the in-person staff. Um, And some of those sort of as pieces sort of fall into place, you begin to see this scenario where um, it's really going to have to be divided into two schools. The idea that the staff can be running you know, both a remote and an in-person just seemed like you would do neither of those very well. So therefore, dividing up the staff and having them be able to focus, which meant making some compromises, and that's always a hard decision to make. Um, But as the pieces fall into place, it actually um, became pretty apparent that we were able to maintain really sort of artificially small class sizes for the in-person students, just based on parent decisions and the number of, of spaces we had available, which we actually really love that because that experience for kids to, to come to school in this sort of new mode of operating with masks and six foot distancing and, you know, a lot of prescriptive um, expectations around the way that they'll move around the building and what have you that by virtue of keeping the class sizes small, it allows for those teachers to really hang on to those kids' hearts in a way that would be more difficult if the class size was too large. Um, And it allows for flexibility. One of your previous podcasts was with Jana Durbin, who's a lab host and teacher at the Open School, and she's just phenomenal at um, what she calls discovery circles as a reading mechanism and um, just talking to her and being in her, in her room the other day and seeing how she's adapting that model at a six-foot distance but still allowing kids to really own their own learning even with this model. So it's been great to be able to have those small class sizes. It's meant for larger class sizes in the remote situation. Um, and that's a place where uh, my AP, Melissa, who who came from the virtual world, has just been phenomenal in supporting that team. Um, but not just the teachers, is because that's a real paradigm shift that the practical reality, if you're remote, is 
the, the fundamental teacher is the parent, right? And so the parent needs coaching and support both from, you know, effectively an instructional coach, which is sort of de facto the role that Melissa has been playing with that parent community, but also with the teachers to how does the teacher be the support person for the parent? Because the parent is the person in front of the kid. And that's where the real meat of the learning is going to happen. And so that's that's a really detailed example of sort of where we're at with the elementary school. When we look at the middle and the high school, um, one of the main responses that they've done is is diving into what they're calling an intensive model. And that's similar to Colorado College uses um, a block system like this where you're you're effectively honing in on one particular course over a three-week period of time. And then over the course of the year, kids will have eight courses, which is what a typical schedule has, but it's 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 focused intensively for one class that's effectively going on over the course of the day. And that's being done in a, in a hybrid um, setup. We have a lot more in-person kids on the days that they are in person at the secondary level of the school than we do at the elementary. Um, so, but these multidisciplinary courses, which is a new thing for the open school, um, they have to be highly um, integrated. So they're co-taught by um, teachers from different disciplines um, and really teasing out how do we create courses that are highly engaging um, because at this moment when kids are here part of the time but operating from home the other part of the time, that's been a real challenge. But you're also uh, balancing that with controlling cohorts and maintaining safety um, and what have you. And so we felt like the combination thereof provided us the best opportunity to provide a safe environment, but also maintain integrity to the open school philosophy, but also really begin to push ourselves into this whole new realm. And so it was really, you know, it was really phenomenal conversations that were happening with particularly the high school staff in relationship to the, um, the intensive model. So what's interesting is, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about the intensive model and obviously the hybrid for secondary seems to be a very popular kind of structure in terms of managing cohort size and keeping classes a little bit smaller. What's interesting, though, and I haven't heard as much about is the idea of a multidisciplinary or a co-taught intensive. So I'm wondering just for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind just giving a couple of examples of, you know, kind of what are some of the teachers up to in terms of their collaboration or what do some of those intensive look like and sound like? Yeah. So, um, the, I, a couple of examples that we're offering right now, um, in our first round of intensives for this fall of the school year is an interdisciplinary class that's taught by a science teacher and a theater teacher that's called stars and stories. Um, where they're doing an astronomy course, but then also doing readings and plays and drawing analogies between the writing process and the scientific method and how do those sort of concepts overlap and where do you see connections there? What's your schema for both of those things, right? <laughs> right. So um, that's one example and that's really an outside the box type of pairing in my opinion. Um, and that's a really great team to have my theater teacher and, you know, a science teacher, um, uh, working on this course together. Um, we have one called intriguing trees. Um, and that's an ecology science course. That's also being taught with the visual arts teacher. And so she's looking at patterns in nature and how do we learn about, 
um, ecology and the environment through observation and how is observation utilized in the scientific method also and learning about the ecology of a system and what have you. So another really creative integration. And then with mathematics, um, it's not a program of our own design. Um, there's a couple other schools in Jefferson County that are working in this, um, what's called geometry and construction. Um, and this is particularly mathematics and geometry, but also has a really robust service learning component because they're actually building a habitat for humanity house. Um, so they're actually getting their hands dirty and doing the work and that, that house will be donated to a family that is working with Habitat for Humanity and so that the math and the service learning are integrated in that particular intensive. And that we've done in both a more conventional or traditional type of in-class you know, and service learning um, component last year, but this year we're making that fit within the intensive model where it's a, a more concentrated experience. So those are just a few examples of the multidisciplinary intensives that we're providing. Well, I'm wondering about planning and I'm wondering about, you know, you said you're really leveraging everyone in the building and their strengths and you know, teacher creativity and teacher autonomy and, and using all of your instructional leaders in different ways. How are you supporting teachers to do the heavy lifting, if you will, of this kind of planning with such a, was, was such a change? Yeah. Um, I mean, we were lucky that um, Jefferson County um, gave us a little bit of extra time at the beginning of the school year, um, knowing that we would be coming into really a different model of learning. Um, you know, or that there would be a lot of challenges to sort of work through. So teachers had an extra couple of weeks at the beginning of the year. There was also a lot of district required um, professional development that happened at that time. But I mean, I would say that that provided us a lot of time um, at the beginning. And it, you know, it's, it's also true to say that, you know, teachers volunteer a lot of their time you know, that's just a practical reality of it, um, you know, that they give a lot over the course of the summer, which is not contracted time. It's not paid time. And so I appreciate that. Once we dive into the year, then, um, you know, they, the schedule for the secondary, the teachers have Fridays to be working on their planning and what have you. So there is time allotted. And that's that's been supported by the, the district where there's asynchronous learning that's happening on Fridays to allow for that planning time. And that's really the bulk of where that's happening. Um, but it's, it's challenging for sure um, yeah. to be able to fit that all in. And, and, you know, there's an element of when you give the autonomy and you trust people and support them, you know, the, the amount of, of work that they're willing to put in, um, is really just different. They approach it differently. You know, they're, they're here because they're connected to something bigger than themselves. It's not just, um, it's not just their immediate experience. And, you know, a lot of the workload as far as managing the day-to-day -day work and one of my other APs, Sangeeta has been, you know, managing all of those components and the work that she's done to sort of take that off the plate of the teachers to ensure that, you know, the safety side of the world and the components that are going on there um, has, you know, just not something that the staff has to worry about at the same level. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a team effort for sure. Well, it gets back again to your leadership philosophy around delegation and autonomy and taking care of, of needs and that compassion for your teachers as, as humans. 
Um, I know that everyone listening is going to have 20 million questions probably peppering your inbox just about all of these amazing interdisciplinary courses and all the structures and the ways in which you're, you're managing that complexity. I know that, you know, especially at the secondary level, there's some courses that are kind of like those catalog courses. And are you dealing with those in kind of a remote asynchronous manner or kids also attending those when they're, when they're at the open school? Yeah, just for clarification there. Mm-hmm. So because the, uh, um, the intensive, these interdisciplinary courses um, are so multidisciplinary, one of the things that we're still working on is how do we tease out the specifics of, of credits when you're looking at application for colleges and what have you, because those are so interwoven. Um, so like in the stars and stories class, is that a theater class or is that a science class and how much science and how much theater, et cetera. So also wanting to ensure that that students um, are meeting the expectations for graduation and for college admissions. We've also are simultaneously offering what we're calling um, catalog courses, which are asynchronous some of those have some synchronous support elements to them. Um, some of them are totally autonomous and, and asynchronous with um, a teacher, obviously, on the other side of that, but allows for more independence and for us to provide more choices and some additional um, classes that we could make available because of the teaming situation in the in the intensives. So it just sort of rounds out the overall picture so that the needs of the students are being met. Absolutely. So, Scott, I'm just going to say this is amazing. Everything you have shared from, you know, the PK all the way to graduation, you know, from the first day in the open school to the last day of graduation in this very disrupted, complex year, you have still honed in on those philosophical tenets of the open school. And you mentioned earlier when you were talking about, you know, the text, Beautiful Constraints, that, you know, how do we move beyond feeling like victims of a circumstance? And so I'm just really thinking a lot about that like so if we want to move beyond feeling like victims and we want to really think about our leadership within our systems how do you do that how do you make that move how do you make that transition um well it's it's interesting um you know we the the school is is unique and we've you know one element that you know i mentioned was these capstone projects and the passages and the self-directed work is still deeply integrated into what we do and so um and that hasn't changed in response to covid in fact that's an element where we could lean in on a program that was designed before covid you know it's something we've been doing for the 50-year experience of the school um and that's something we still believe in strongly, and it and it creates a basis for allowing students to work independently. Um, so I I I feel like, and I've always felt like, the open school has something important to say about education within the realm of public education, which we believe profoundly in. We have something unique and something profound to say. And so for us to be able to have that message out there, we need to be responding to the current constraints in a way that's productive, that's healthy. Um, We know that education is being reshaped right in front of our eyes. Like there there are elements coming in and experiences that students are having, that parents and families are having, that staffs are having, that will reshape the nature of education. And so how do we ensure that what we have to say that matters in that conversation is part of that conversation. And you're just not going to be in that conversation if 
we're just responding to the crisis. You know, there's an element and a need to do that, but then there's a moment where you begin to move beyond that. And that's where the conversation really gets exciting and sort of referencing back to the philosophical conversations that we can have as staffs and, and creating space for that and being, you know, being able to push ourselves and think about what are elements that are going on right now that once the crisis that we're living in in the moment is, you know, begins to subside that we actually want to keep, that we want to see it influence the development of our, the next 50 year evolution of the open school, right? Like what's coming next. And that begins to become really exciting in this conversation about how will this fundamentally reshape the way that we imagine the open school to be and the way that we're going to move forward as an educational institution. And then what, in what ways can we take our, le- our learnings from this and push that out into the broader conversation about um, the transformation of education that will inevitably happen as a result of, of the impact of, of COVID. So that's, that's exciting, actually. That is not a victim conversation. That is a, wow, this is really a unique opportunity and it's a moment in history where we can do something that really matters. Absolutely. So as we wrap up today, our conversation, um, I'd love for you to have the last word. And I'm just wondering, what are you what are you thinking about? What's on your mind? What are some of the big questions that you're grappling with or excited about and have energy for? Right. Um, Well, in thinking about this conversation, you know, and and just recently doing graduation, all all the graduations um, in Jefferson County were delayed until August. in hopes that we could have something that more closely resembled a traditional graduation. And and it was a semblance thereof. Um, But the thing that I'm really thinking about is, you know, when I developed a graduation speech for this year's graduation, um, I'd mentioned earlier that the open school travels extensively. And so there's about 40 extended trips that are curricularly based um, in courses that are offered at the school. that happened. And, and the last trip that was out um, when COVID hit was um, a class called Borders, which is a deep dive into immigration issues um, on the Mexico-Arizona border. Um, there was a group of students that loaded onto a bus and, and pulled out of the open school in early March. And um, <clears throat> things got tense while they were on the trip because you know, conditions on the ground were changing and it was back and forth conversation between the school district and the leaders of the trip and and myself and trying to decide what was the best move as far as leaving the kids on the trip or bringing them back. Um, and in the end, we had them stay out, which meant that they actually returned on March 14th and the last day of in-person learning was March 13th. And so it's just really struck me as, you know, these kids left the open school having, you know, had this life experience and educational experience of what they knew school to be and the world to be. Um, And they went and had this deeply moving, um, meaningful experience exploring these really complex issues. Um, And then when they returned and stepped off that bus, they stepped into a world that is, will inherently be vastly different um, and they will not ever actually have a similar kind of learning experience as they had prior to their departure on that trip. And so 
it really strikes me that, you know, in the five goals of the open school, you know, one of those is that students will be able to adapt to the world as it is. And kids have been doing a lot of adapting and students have been doing a lot of adapting and parents have been doing a lot of adapting. Staff has been doing a lot. There's a lot of adapting um, in this moment. And, you know, in conversation with the founding principal of the open school, who was the author of those goals, he, he very much always is reminding me that the first four goals, rediscover the joy of learning, seek meaning in your life, adapt to the world as it is, um, and prepare for the world as it might be, are all in service of the last goal, which is students will be able to create the world that ought to be. And so, you know, when we move beyond feeling like we're a victim of circumstances and really begin to think about how do we take the lessons from this life experience that we're all having and use it to create something better, right? That maybe the schools that we had in before COVID could be better and maybe being bumped out of our rut in the way that this has forced us to do creates an opportunity to reimagine the way that things are done and seek something better. And so I feel like it's really incumbent on, you know, our students and ourselves to seize the moment to really consider how do we create the world that ought to be and take these lessons and help begin the process of creating something that is even better than what existed before as a result of this experience. So, Wow. Well, Scott, yeah. thank you so much. Sure. <laughs> a beautiful conversation. And I'm going to be thinking about creating the world that ought to be and all the ways in which what you've shared with us today just completely shifts the idea of a constraint maybe into an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, like I said, I'm, I'm a fan of education and <clears throat> podcasts related to this. And so I'm, I'm, it's been really fun to be able to have this kind of conversation with you. It's been really fun for me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together provided inspiration and information. In closing, PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Wardhofer. We now provide customized virtual and on-site professional development, coaching, institutes, and digital courses. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org.